You're listening to the Mental Health Download from the nonprofit Mental Health Association, Oklahoma. I'm Matt Gleason. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Jenna Adair about helping people with visual impairments connect to mental health services. We're just so excited to have Jenna with us today. Hi, Jenna. Hi, Matt. So Jenna is spending the summer as a Mental Health Association Oklahoma student intern, thanks to the OU School of Social Work. We love them very much. Jenna, tell our audience about yourself and why you wanted to talk about what it's like for people with visual impairments to connect with mental health treatment. Sure. So I'm what's called legally blind, which basically means that I have some remaining vision, but I use a lot of assistive devices like I use a cane or a screen reader to read documents. And I wanted to talk about mental health access for people with visual impairments because most mental health care agencies don't know how to make things accessible for people in the blind community, which makes obtaining treatment that much more difficult. So Jenna, do you have any mental health issues and if so, how do you handle them? Um, yeah, so I have a depression and anxiety. I see a therapist and I have a very, I have a really great community of blind folks. It's called the National Federation of the Blind Tulsa Chapter. They are my family. I love them and I can talk to them about everything, including, you know, just advocacy fatigue, being tired of always having to fight. They give me that little extra push. So yeah, they're really great. And joining us on the podcast is my dearest and loveliest and most favored friend, Dr. Jedediah Bragg. Jedediah, I love you so much. We're so glad you're here, Jedediah. Can you tell the audience about yourself and how you know Jenna and just why you're passionate about this topic we're going to be talking about today? Yeah. Um, Well, thank you for having me here today, Matt. I'm currently serving as faculty with the Ann and Henry Zero School of Social Work at OU Tulsa. I generally teach more in the community or macro practice. I like bigger things. I like to try to solve large problems. At the same time, I also work with the Professor Pause Project, which last time you got to meet Koa. Jenna came into my world of existence. In her first semester in this program, when I received this email from a student saying, hi, by the way, I'm in your class this fall. Can you please make sure I get the PowerPoints early because I am blind? And I'm like, oh, that's a problem. I do not know how to address this issue. So I immediately emailed Jenna. I'm like, yes, I can get you everything you need, but you're going to have to let me know what I can do differently, what I can do better. And that just grew from Jenna being in my classes every semester, the entire time she's been in the program to then when she's in the field unit and now in her concentration year practicum, I was her off-site field instructor because I've worked with her for so long. I'm not afraid of troubleshooting and figuring out how to do things differently. I've even had to help come up with ideas on how to help other faculty accommodate the needs that Jenna has in classrooms. In a statistics class, you can't see the computer screen and we have this entire computer program you have to learn how to use. And nobody had thought about that's going to be a problem. And when Jenna was in my office talking to me about doing research, I'm like, oh yeah, we can do research. And it just clicked. But... Are you taking that class in the fall? Because there's a couple assignments that are going to be a problem. And nobody thought about it. But nobody thought about it because it doesn't really impact them directly. It's not that they didn't care to think about it. It's just it's outside of their purview. They've never had a student who is blind. I've had a student who's legally deaf. And now I've had a student who's legally blind. You just roll with it and find out what you can do differently. And I am not about or I'm not opposed to asking the student. What am I doing that needs to be done better? What can we change? How do we need to make things better? Nice. And so, Jenna, <laughs> oh, now you tell your side of that, of the, yeah. of that courageous story. Um, 
So Judd has just been so great. I know that my very first year, we you're placed within a practicum site. And unfortunately, you know, when the uh, field practicum director tried to look for different placement sites, nobody wanted to take somebody like me, which is concerning since, you know, when you look at the social work guidelines, we're supposed to be advocating for people and minorities. So I, I think that it is just an education issue, unfortunately. But Judd was right there. He knew of a site I could go to and was willing to volunteer as my field instructor. And he's just been so great helping me troubleshoot and really helping me, you know, get the education I want out there so that, you know, the things that affect me right now, they won't affect people like me in the future. And Jedediah, you've been with the Mental Health Association Oklahoma for many years. You were actually an intern with us many years ago. You are part of the family. And so tell us why you wanted Jenna to do her internship with us. Well, one of the main reasons is you at the Mental Health Association have a large footprint. You impact a lot of lives on a daily basis. At the same time, Jenna comes from the side of social work that I come from where it's not that we don't necessarily want to help the individual. We love helping individuals, but we're more about trying to fix a system. We're more about trying to improve the community so it impacts everyone in that community. When you try to find a practicum placement that is very macro or community intensive, they're far and few between. One of the ones that usually comes up to my mind is the Mental Health Association because that's where I did mine at. At the same time, having had experience at the Mental Health Association with the Diversity and Inclusion Committee, the Zero um, Symposium Planning Committee, I know that the Mental Health Association is very much in tune with wanting to be as accessible as possible. However, just like I had that experience when I had Jenna in my class for the very first semester. Um, and all the time working at the Mental Health Association, when we're talking about accessibility, disability, access, it was talked about a lot, but I don't ever think I ever heard anybody mention anything about someone who was blind. So it's one of those things, like I told Jenna, and I've said this numerous times, and when I gave Jenna an award at graduation, I made this comment, and it's a pun that I try not to use too often, but it's the only way I can explain this is, Jenna has opened my eyes to many things that I had not seen before. And it is so amazing that when a person who is legally blind can actually open your eyes. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Jenna at the Mental Health Association is because I knew everyone at that organization would be receptive to change because they want to improve the lives of everybody in the community. And this is just one other way that they can do it. All right. So if someone wants to be a disability advocate, but they don't know how to help what should they do? And this is a question for both of you, but we're going to start with Jed. Ask the people that are in that group or that population what it is that you can do. What in general needs to be changed? What isn't working? What can you do better? If you're outside of the population that's not directly experiencing that problem, how do you know what isn't working or what could be better? You need to ask. Then once you have found out what isn't working or what could work better, you now have a place to start. Depending upon what that place looks like, it may be a matter of reaching out to different coalitions or different groups. It may be forming a new group or a coalition. But the biggest thing I would say about being a disability advocate is asking individuals who have disabilities, what is it that you can do better? And that's what I told Jenna her very first time when she was in my office was that the things that you're changing at OU and out at your practicum sites, as bad as it sounds, they're not going to benefit you. They're not going to make your short time in that organization or that short time at OU any better. If anything, it may make it a little harder because you're pushing for change. 
However, every person that comes after you, it's going to be so much easier. So it's one of those things. Ask, what can you do better? Uh, I may be Jenna's instructor in the classroom, but I still go to Jenna on what can I do better? Because Jenna's the only student that I have that's blind. So how would I know that I'm doing something wrong or saying, and Jenna's probably heard this numerous times in classrooms. Well, right up here on the board, when you look on the left-hand side of the screen, it says that, well, can Jenna even see that? It's, it's those things of asking Jenna, what can I do better? Yeah. All right. Same question to you, Jenna. If someone wants to be a disability advocate, but they don't know how to help, what would you tell them to do? I think it really goes off of what Judd is saying, you know, ask the person first and primarily never, ever, ever assume. I can't tell you how many awful moments I've had where people have taken me by the arm and shoved me across the street and I'm freaking out inside. So don't ever do things like that. But also, you know, Jed has been so great. When I did tell him about, you know, what I was having trouble with, he took it upon himself to go online and research it because that information is out there and you just have to have the motivation to go research. Nice. All right, Jedediah. So what, what methods have you used to make things accessible for Jenna? Yeah, th this is a very interesting topic because it wasn't something like I mentioned that I was taught or for that matter, I don't think many people are taught this unless you're learning about accessibility or teaching. Unfortunately, this probably would be taught to like special education teachers, whereas Jenna doesn't need special education. I would say if anything, I'm the one that needs that because I need to know how to do it. But one of the simplest things you can do is make sure things are accessible in the classroom. Think about readings or for that matter, Think about things you may have to read at a nonprofit, forms, applications. If we're talking about something that is a hard copy, can it be made digital? If it's made digital, is it accessible? Because that's not one and the same. I learned that very quickly. If you do run across things like how do you make books? How do you make those documents accessible? There are numerous software that you can buy or download. There are free things online. Jenna sent me to, I think it's Robo Braille. I have it saved. I can't remember what it is, but you can email them a PDF that's not accessible. And we're talking minutes. You get an email back and it's made into a, an accessible document that worked on Jenna's screen reader. Took me like two seconds to send an email. Learning best ways or best practices to present things in a PowerPoint. I've had students recently um, complain because my PowerPoints are pretty boring and plain because they're like black and white, high contrast, large text. I'm not filling them with images. And my response is, I don't know if every student in the classroom can see those. So I make them in the best practices for individuals with visual impairments. Very high contrast, large font. Why put an image on a slide if the image really isn't needed? Things like that. We've also worked with information technology. We went sort of outside of the normal protocol and procedure on ways to figure out how to do things. But when Jenna was taking a research methods class and she had to learn how to use SPSS, which is the statistical software, her screen reader was not going to work well for that. So we worked with information technology and they found out there were some built-in software and IT started working with us trying to figure that out. The big thing I would say is don't be rigid. You need to be very flexible. You need to be able to troubleshoot things and just try to improve. I've brought in graduate research assistants to help Jenna with a survey assignment in a class. Jenna did the entire survey. She did the entire assignment. The program that she needed to use on the backside is not accessible. Jenna can take a survey that's being built in it, but Jenna can't build the survey. They only made one side of the program accessible to people who are blind because apparently they thought people who were blind wouldn't be making surveys. I had another assignment where Jenna needed to access the United States Census Bureau website. 
one would think that would be accessible. It is not. So I partnered with one of our research librarians. So she gave Jenna this list to make sure you know what census tract, what forms you're wanting. And the librarian basically was Jenna's eyes and navigated the website to download all of the Excel files that Jenna needed. So it's just a matter of how do you make things work? How do you improve that relationship between the student, the faculty, getting the assignments done and not having to go through all of these hoops about, and I don't want to say we shouldn't be making accommodations because Jenna and I did that on the fly, but it shouldn't take six to eight months to get an accommodation approved. We should be able to make some of these on our own. And so that's some of the things is relying on technology, making things accessible, and everyone, everyone should be able to do the accessibility when it comes to documents. There are services out there. All right. And Jenna, you know, can you direct us to best practices to make things more accessible? Sure. So the ADA website has some great guidelines over making documents and websites fully accessible. The organization that I'm a part of called the National Federation of the Blind, NFB.org, has some great articles about accessibility and just blindness in general, if people are interested. Uh, those are the main two that come to the top of my head. Of course, there's Robo Braille, which is a program that I believe is from the Swedish government, where you can email files like Jed alluded to, which is just so convenient. But that's, I think those are the main things. Right on. All right. So let's get more into the mental health side of things. This question again is for both of you. We'll start with Jed. What can specifically mental health staff do to make things more accessible for the visually impaired? This is going to sound overly simplistic, but metaphorically, close your eyes. Literally, close your eyes. How accessible is the environment around you? Can you find the office? Can you fill out forms? Is there a process that can help you fill out the forms if you can't see them? Is there a way to make things digital? Is there a way to make the digital version fully accessible? Think about this one. Keep your eyes closed. Now there's a fire. One, can you see the exit? Can you find the exit? Maybe you're deaf. Maybe you can't hear the fire alarm going off. Think about all of those things. We take them for granted, but just close your eyes and think about the things in that room that you can't do. One thing I will say is that I think that individuals in mental health could do a little bit better. And rightfully so, we're paying very, very close attention to diversity and inclusion issues right now. That's something that's been overlooked for far too long. And I'm glad to see we're doing that. The problem is when we're talking about diversity, inclusion, equality, and equity, we tend to overlook varying types of disabilities. As I alluded to earlier, looking back from undergrad through my doctoral program, I don't recall much, if anything, being mentioned about those among us who are blind. I don't recall hearing about the problems that individuals who are blind face. I don't remember hearing anything about what allies of the blind can do. I don't even think I've ever heard of the term allies for the blind, but in general, I've never even heard about what individuals who are blind, what they have accomplished. I never remember hearing any of that. So it's one of those things that I think will get better as people like Jenna are starting to really push for making sure that when people are talking about diversity and inclusion, they're thinking about ability. They're thinking about access. That's one of the, the big things that I think we really need to focus on is making sure when we're talking about diversity and inclusion, we're not talking about just one thing or this other thing. We're talking about ability. We're talking about race, sexuality, religion, the whole thing. But we can't just exclude ability level because if we're talking about diversity and inclusion and we're excluding ability, how inclusive are we actually being? 
Jenna, same question to you, specifically for mental health staff. What can they do to make things more accessible for people who are visually impaired? You know, I think the big thing is cardinal directions is always helpful if you know your card, you know, left, right, that kind of thing. And maybe knowing the bus line more directly, that's helpful. And I used to work for a department of rehab and I had several clients who were facing some pretty severe mental health issues. And unfortunately, the mental health therapist we referred them to dissuaded them from pursuing future courses and services with the Department of Rehab. Yes, please don't do that. Those services are vital for some, to make somebody independent, kind of say you shouldn't ever dissuade somebody from pursuing services, whether disabled or not. That should be, you know, self-autonomy. And I guess that's the big thing for mental health therapists is, you know, really respect somebody's autonomy. That is so paramount because a lot of times that's been taken away from somebody with a disability and that's what they're struggling with. Exactly. Well, and everybody um, assumes, you know, that we've all adapted to this Zoom virtual environment and nobody ever thinks what that means for people who have challenges, right? So mm-hmm. actually, I'm, I'm curious about that. What are the challenges you've faced? Um, it's actually been kind of nice because I don't have to get on a bus and ride two hours to get to class or to my practicum site or something like that. So it's kind of been nice in that respect. But I do get pretty severe eye fatigue from looking at a computer all day, even though I do use a screen reader. Sometimes I still rely on that remaining vision a little bit and it does start to become painful. So I have to take breaks. Yeah. And we, we did have to troubleshoot and work around because Jenna was in one of my classes. I think it was the semester we shifted to everything was being online. So Jenna, we're in Zoom. And Jenna also needs to listen to her screen reader on her laptop. So it was like multiple sensory overload coming out of her computer. So what Jenna wound up needing to do was log into the Zoom meeting with her audio on her phone so she could listen to the phone for, to actually hear the Zoom conversation. That way, the only thing on her computer was her screen reader. So it's, it's, it's troubleshooting and thinking those things out because that's something I never would have thought of. But Jenna's like, just so you know, you're going to see me in Zoom twice. Yeah, that is one thing I forgot about. If I have the chat up, my screen reader is talking and Jed's talking. It's like, oh, gosh, this is too much. This is way too much. So, yeah, I either have to turn the chat off or I have to call in, you know, that kind of thing. So, I, I guess on a scale of, I don't know, one to ten, Jenna, where is you know, our society right now in making things accessible for people who have challenges with their vision? Mm, maybe a three on a good day. <laughs> the thing is, you know, I have a lot of friends who work in the website and software business and we, we try and get this point to them over and over and over again. And it's like, nobody listens. You have to institute accessibility from the start or you're going to have to, it's going to be a whole derailment. So as we come to the end of the show, our tradition is to ask each of our guests, one last bit of wisdom, their parting words. So Jedediah, I'm going to ask you to go first. Yeah. So I will, I know as social workers, we're not supposed to give advice, but I will give some advice here. And it's going to be the same advice I gave Jenna in our first meeting during her very first semester. And it generally goes something like this. And it revolves around the fact that it may be rough or it may be hard for you right now because the system isn't prepared for you. That isn't because of you. It's because the system wasn't ready for you. So what do you need to do? 
You need to change the system. It may mean things won't be changed until after you leave, so you won't feel the benefit, but it will be so much better for the person following you. So change the system. And that's what Jenna's trying to do. I think it goes back to what Jed says, you know, don't take it personally when people don't make things accessible for you. It's not that they're trying to do it with any menace. It's just that people don't understand. And unfortunately, even though it's tiring and it's exhausting, you do have to educate. And hopefully by educating, we can make the world a more accessible and better place for everyone.